You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. To be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I have hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, um, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from uh, Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him, 
his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people would, should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for the fact that what you say will be done, will be done. I pray that you'll be with Jeremy today as he brings this word to us and help us to be learners and apply it to our lives and to those around us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. It began with, with nothing but God. And then God speaking a sermon, if you will, and bringing beauty, substance out of nothing. God's creation was good. And after all of this creation, we saw in Genesis 1, him saying, it's good. And then Adam and Eve, the pinnacle of creation, the only part of his creation made in his image. Adam and Eve were very good. And there in Genesis 1 and 2, we got to see a picture of God's people in God's place living under God's rule. And things were wonderful. Adam and Eve were married. They were there working, going about their business as they should have. Chapter 3 of Genesis hits. And all of a sudden, we see another sermon that Adam and Eve are listening to. And instead of applying God's sermon, they listened to the serpent's sermon. They started to doubt God's goodness. Pro tip, if you ever have a serpent talking to you, telling you to doubt God's promises, would you just go ahead and crush that snake for us all? <laughs> Adam would have done it. He didn't. And instead, he ate that forbidden fruit along with his wife. And what entered into the world in that moment was sin and sickness and death and disease. You might remember there at the end of Genesis... 
There was a beautiful promise along with these curses. Man was cursed in his work. Woman was cursed in her childbearing. But there was a promise. One day there is coming an offspring who will crush the head of that serpent. But Adam and Eve get kicked out of God's place. As they get kicked out at the end of Genesis 3, there's these two angels with flaming swords guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden, saying, hey, Adam and Eve, if you decide you want to come back to God's place, to be God's people under God's rule, it will cost you your life. You are not going to come back here and live. And since Genesis 3, then, we've been tracking the story of God's people as they try to wrestle through how are we ever to get back to God's place and be God's people? How do we ever go back to the Garden of Eden? What's the plan there? Where is this serpent-crushing Messiah who can help us? This morning we come to the end of Genesis. And as we've tracked through Genesis, we've seen some dominant themes. And what we're going to see today is Moses in an incredible way summarizing some themes that show us how God's people will get back to God's place and live under God's rule. It will come through God's believing God's covenant promises. It will come through God's mercy. It will come through God's sovereignty. And we're going to see a restored creation. But that's the tension. How do these themes of God's covenant promises and his mercy and his sovereignty, how are those actually going to get us back to the garden? Well, that's what I want to show you in our text today. To do that, we're going to move in four steps. God's sovereignty, his mercy, his his promises, his mercy, his sovereignty that gets us back to the garden. If you're taking notes, you might want to write down this first big idea that to get back to the garden, we're going to have to believe in God's covenant promises. And I draw this from verse 29 of chapter 49 through 50, verse 6. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open up so I can walk you through this passage and you can see how these themes drive us in this trajectory here, in this section we see Jacob's last words to his family and sons. Jacob saying, would you please bury me in this little cave that Abraham bought back in Genesis 23? We're reminded that Abraham and Sarah are buried in that cave, as are Isaac and Rebekah, as is Jacob's wife, Leah. Joseph, who's demonstrated so much emotion in Genesis, unsurprisingly, continues his role as the major weeper of the family. You might notice there in verse 1, crying all over dad. A meaningful note to all who appreciate public displays of emotion. By show of hands, how many of you like to cry all over people publicly? Yeah, a few of you. A little bit annoying to those here not comfortable with weeping, especially in public. How many of you, show of hands, you're like, I hate when people start crying in front of me in public. By my count, this is the eighth time Joseph has been weeping. We're going to see a ninth before the text is done. But Jacob has died, and what follows is Jacob's body being embalmed. There's a total of 70 days to grieve. 
A funeral for a king is what this is like. Joseph then asks Pharaoh, please let me bury my dad back in the promised land, Canaan. A trickier request than we might have realized since the expectation would be that Jacob would be buried there in Egypt. But Joseph is wise and winsome as ever, convinces Pharaoh, bringing us to the end of this first section, showing us as it would have shown the original audience, which was the 12 tribes of Israel. I can show you that from chapter 49, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. One verse outside our preaching passage, but just to be clear, this Genesis was written to those 12 tribes as they're out in the wilderness, and it's revealing to them that Jacob here in his death is believing God's covenant promises, especially this covenant promise of Genesis from, or from, from Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God promised land, seed, and blessing. In case you didn't brush up on your Old Testament covenant promises over breakfast, one of the most important promises in all of the Bible is there in Genesis 12, when God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, and all those who bless you will be blessed, all those who curse you will be cursed, and I'm going to bless all the nations through one of your offspring, Abraham. Here then, at the end of Jacob's life, he's demonstrating faith in that covenant promise. And it's going to be faith in that covenant promises that's going to get us back to the garden. But what I wanted you to see here is Jacob believing in that covenant promise evidenced by him wanting to be buried in that little cave. See, in case you didn't know, despite the promise, if we're just talking land for a moment, if we're just talking land, Abraham was promised all this land in Canaan. Isaac, given all the land in Canaan. And now Jacob, who has received all of these promises, all the land in Canaan is supposed to be his. But would you like to know how much land he actually owns in Canaan? Like if a few days before his death you said, Jacob, could you go get into your file cabinet real quick and just show me the property deed of what you owe in Canaan? What do you own? He'd say, well, I mean, it's all mine. Yeah, I know you're claiming it, but what do you actually own? He'd, he'd be able to pull out the deed for, I don't know, a hundred square foot cave, a little field of Machpelah. Well, Jacob, what in the world? I thought you owned all the promises. Well, I do. God promised it, so it's as good as gold, but I'm going to get it. But right now, legally, all I own is a little place where I can be buried. And Jacob's saying, someday I'm going to be gathered to my people. That phrase happens twice in our text. Dr. Ralph just shared that with me. Twice in the text, he says, I'm going to be gathered to my people. Somehow Jacob's cooking on. There's a resurrection to come in some ways. And when I get gathered to my people, I don't want to be in Egypt. You bury me in the place where God promised to give us land. Somehow that's central to how to get back to the Garden of Eden. Jacob demonstrating belief in God's covenant promises. Here then is the application for the original audience. Believe God's covenant promises. Believe him, even in the face of, of death. Even like Hebrews 11 tells us, there, there at Jacob's death, he had not yet received the things promised, and yet in his mind he's going, well then I guess just bury me in the promised land and God will figure out how to get those blessings to me. 
believe God's covenant promises. But I don't want to just keep this theoretical. I want to try to get a little practical with you. Let me try to push this into our lives. For the Israelites, they needed to believe these covenant promises. And we do too. We need to believe these covenant promises here. And not just this covenant promise of Genesis 12, but the, but the promise to Adam, the promise to Noah, the promise to David. Throughout our Bibles, God's making promises, and we need to believe those things. And if you're wondering, okay, but what's one thing I can do to believe them? I would say it's going to be really hard to believe God's covenant promises if you don't know God's covenant promises. Some of you may be feeling like, hey man, I'm not actually sure how to apply this practically. And the reason is because in the back of your mind, you don't have God's covenant promises at the ready. It's like giving a multiplication worksheet to a kid who doesn't have their times tables memorized. They're not going to do very good on that deal. And, and, and if you're finding yourself going, ugh, I'm not sure how to actually believe God's covenant promises because I don't know God's covenant promises, well, then we need, to, we need to get you up to speed with God's covenant promises. And just like a lack of knowing your times tables may be more of a reflection of the teacher than the student, so maybe that's what's going on here. But my encouragement would be, let's have a little extra after-school work. Let's... let's Let's do a little extra homework, and, and, and a way to plug this in would be to read your Bible. And, and I'm not trying to shame or condemn anybody here who may be feeling like, ooh, I kind of wish I did have more of God's covenant promises on lock. Okay, let's just call it what it is. We, we don't know our times tables as well as we need to, so we need to sharpen We need to get those in our hearts. And I'd like to encourage you and me, because I struggle too, and let's commit ourselves to reading God's Word so we can get them. God's Bible are full of promises. And I think if we really believed this, if we really believed God's going to keep his covenant promises, we'd be a lot more motivated to wake up and go, I need a promise for today. Man, today's going to be tough. Man, life is tricky right now. I've got to have God's promises to guide me through whatever I'm facing. So many of us, we will look over here or over there or, or anywhere, not except the Bible, to try to find some hope for our day. And, and, it, and if we believe, man, God has made promises and he's going to keep his promises, I wonder if that wouldn't give us a bigger appetite to read God's word. Hebrews 11 is confirming our passage shows us Jacob believing God's promises. Let's believe God's promise. Because and, 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 how are we going to pray God's promises back to him as we should if we don't know him? How are we going to encourage one another with God's promises if we don't know him? Like if you text a friend this week and you say, how are you doing? And they say, I'm feeling really discouraged. Well, one thing you could do would be to think to yourself, oh man, I know that when I'm discouraged, God's promises, man, they, they, they give me courage. They put steel in my spine. They give me hope. So I've got a friend who's discouraged. Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to text them one of God's promises that I was just digging into this week because, because that's what they need. They need God's promises. And what an encouraging text to receive when you're feeling discouraged to know, hey, here's a promise from God that you can believe in, and he's going to keep his promises. Church, God makes covenant promises. He keeps covenant promises. Let's believe them. Let's believe these covenant promises. I think that starts with knowing them and reading them. 
Well, something about God's covenant promises is going to get us back to Eden, but there's, there's another ingredient that's part of how all of this works, and that's believing in God's mercy. I draw this from verses 7 to 14. If you look there in Genesis 50, you'll notice Joseph leading a gigantic funeral procession with the Egyptians. And he goes up through Canaanite country toward this cave that Abraham bought. And there in verse 10, do you notice that seven-day cry fest that was so momentous that the locals renamed that place the Morning of Egypt? If I had to guess which son of Jacob started that cry fest, I've got to guess. <laughs> Text doesn't tell us. But there is something very unique about the route that this funeral procession takes that we probably miss, but the original audience would have got it. From the text, if you look, they started at Goshen, verse 8, and then notice in verse 10, they go to this floor of Atad beyond the Jordan. And then in verse 11, they're eventually into the land of Canaan before finally making it to the cave, the burial place in verse 13. Now, what I want you to know is that route was not as the crow flies. Like if you were sitting in Goshen and you were playing in The Amazing Race, and they were like, get to the cave of Machpelah. You do not go this way unless you want to lose. <laughs> it's not quick. But here's what the original audience would have known. This route is actually the exact same route that the Israelites took in the Exodus. Wasn't that interesting? That when the Israelites left Egypt, they took this same kind of curvy, seems somewhat goofy way to get to Canaan. They hit all these spots. Now, I didn't know that I needed commentary help. Grace on you if you didn't know that from the text. Here's some help for you. But it, here's what it does. It makes us go, well, why are they taking that goofy, that goofy route? And the answer is, Moses wants us to contrast the route they took here with the route from the Exodus, and he wants us to contrast how the Egyptians and the Canaanites, who are in our text in this section, acted here compared to how they acted in the Exodus. I'm not trying to make this too dense. I want you to get this. It, it's like this. Notice that when Joseph goes to Pharaoh and says, I want to go bury my dad, Pharaoh says, go. What happened when Moses went to Pharaoh? Pharaoh said, uh-uh. When Joseph went to Pharaoh, he functionally said, would you bless me? Would you bless me to go? And Pharaoh blessed him. And as a result of Pharaoh blessing Joseph, Pharaoh was blessed then. But when in Exodus, Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, no, Pharaoh was cursing the Israelites. And as a result, that Pharaoh got cursed. Remember how the story ends for that Pharaoh with Moses? He ends up chasing the Israelites into the Red Sea. He dies. He, he's cursed because he cursed the Israelites as they were trying to go home. Even here in the text, the Canaanites, they're honoring this funeral fit for a king. They're renaming this place. The Canaanites are honoring Jacob's death Later on, they're going to get judged for their wickedness. But in our text, God is giving mercy to the Egyptians and he's giving mercy to the Canaanites. And further on in the story, neither the Egyptians or the Canaanites will get mercy. They will get God's judgment because of how they deal with the Israelites. In our section then, what we see is, especially to the Egyptians and the Canaanites in this whole funeral procession, it's God's mercy. If you're going to honor the Israelites... God's going to keep his promise to Abraham and the Egyptians and Canaanites would be blessed. These pagan nations 
They are offered mercy. They don't receive immediate judgment. And the Exodus connection then in this section would lead the original audience to realize God's mercy is real. And they were called to believe God's mercy. And of course, we see God's mercy here to the Egyptians and the Canaanites, but this isn't the only place we've seen God's mercy. We saw God's mercy with Adam and Eve back in the garden. They deserved immediate death. They didn't get it. We see God's mercy throughout the story. Abraham making all of these awful decisions with his wife, Sarah, he still gets mercy. Isaac receiving mercy. Jacob. I mean, talk about a number of wrong decisions in Jacob's life. Mercy. All of Joseph's brothers, they receive mercy. Mercy somehow is getting us back into the garden. Here's the application for them and us. Believe in God's mercy. Believe in God's mercy. You've got to believe in it. And one way this would manifest itself is if you would share God's mercy with others. Like this church, here's one way that we could evidence that this is true in our lives. If, if God really is who he says he is, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin. If that's really who God is, and we've received that mercy, we ought to be quick to offer that mercy to others. But this is what's so hard. Because so many times, we feel, we feel like, no way is God going to keep being merciful to me. Too many times we think he's run out of mercy for us. Or we want him to run out of mercy for other people. Too many times we think sin issues are too ingrained. We, there's no hope. And yet God's patient in his mercy. He's long-suffering in nature. And he's waited long enough to give you an opportunity to respond to his mercy. And it could be that one of the reasons he hasn't yet come back is because he's waiting for others to respond to his mercy. In view of God's mercy, let's share God's mercy with others. Oh, church, who in your life needs God's mercy today? If Luke 7, 47 is true, that he who has been forgiven much loves much, who might need to hear about how God's still merciful today? Share God's mercy. Somehow God's mercy is getting us back to the garden. But a third ingredient to get us back there will be God's sovereignty, which I draw from verses 15 to 21. Big idea number three, believe in God's sovereignty. Look in the scriptures. In following Jacob's burial, Joseph's brothers worry that Joseph and his mercy has run out. So they, feel, they fear revenge is on its way. So they send a message to Joseph, verse 16. Hey, Dad told us, like, when you weren't around, but he did tell us, um, you got to forgive us, okay? That smells fishy to me. End of 17, Joseph's heart's breaking and he's weeping again. Verse 18, well, weeping in 17 because his brothers still don't believe that he forgives them. You wonder how, if, if in Joseph's heart he just goes, what do I got to tell you guys? What's it going to take for you to know I forgive you? It had been 17 years. 17 years since he said, it's me. <laughs> And then he forgave him then, and still, 17 years later, they go, man, I, don't, I think he's going to get us now. Verse 18, his brothers, they, they send a message first. Verse 18, they decide, okay, now let's go in person, and what do they do? They bow down, and they begin to grovel. 
And here's what Joseph says. One of the most famous verses in all of Genesis. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What we see Joseph summing up is, this is how he makes sense of evil. And it helps frame all the evil that we've seen in the book. All the evil that we've seen in Genesis. What's God going to do about Genesis 3? Somehow he's going to take evil and he's going to make good out of it. And somehow there's going to be an offspring who's going to crush the serpent's head. We're not sure exactly how it's going to work, but he's going to do something good. Or Noah and that whole mess, somehow God made good out of that time. Or Abraham and all of his wrong decisions with Sarah, somehow he made good out of it. You might remember Abraham left Egypt. They'd given him all this wealth. He had treated his wife wrongly, and he comes out a millionaire. And here, Joseph's saying, God takes something that you meant for evil, and he's so powerful. He is so sovereign, he turns it into good. And there's lives that are saved because of what God did. This is what the original audience needed to understand. Somehow in God's economy, he takes the bad stuff, the worst stuff, the stuff that sends people without God spiraling into indefinite trauma. God takes that and he makes good out of it. The application for them, same for us. Believe in God's sovereignty. Believe in God's sovereignty. But again, I don't want this just to be theoretical. Here's one way I'm trying to press this into our lives. At some point, all of us in this room will face suffering. Some of you have already faced the, the most difficult suffering you've ever faced. Some of you are facing it right now. You are in the middle of it. Some of you are like, I don't even know what he's talking about. And it's coming this week. Or it's coming someday. But all of us are going to face suffering. And when we face suffering, when that crisis of belief hits us, we, we come to a point where we think, well, I'm just going to flush my faith. Or, or we get so afraid. I guess God's not really in control. Either God's not real, because why would he let me go through this suffering, or God's not powerful enough. Or I suppose a third option is, we think, no, God is powerful enough, and he did this, and I hate him for it. And we rage. But what God's sovereignty can do is it can give us grace as we walk through suffering to actually find peace with God. To be able to rest, even though we don't know why all of this evil is happening or why we have to go through all of this suffering, it gives us peace to know, I don't have to flush my faith. God's still God. And I don't have to be afraid because God knows what he's doing. And I don't have to rage because God's really in control. He's not mad at me. Here, as we begin this season of Advent, we're able to consider the world we live in and all the carnage that we see and all the suffering that others are going through and some of us are going through. And, and it leads our hearts to say, man, come Lord Jesus. We want you to return. And as we wait, we want to believe you really are sovereign and somehow in your sovereignty you allowed a little baby to become Christ the Lord and he was fully God and fully man and he came to die on the cross and in Christ's suffering, 
Christ didn't flush his faith. In Christ's suffering, he didn't succumb to fear. In Christ's suffering, he didn't rage. Instead, he rested in God's promises. And this is the payout, one of the payouts of believing God's sovereignty. For indeed, God has sovereignly made promises, and he's going to sovereignly keep promises. Well, somehow, then, God's covenant promises, God's mercy, God's sovereignty, those ingredients play out to try to get us back to Eden. But one more section, believing in God's creation. Back in Genesis 3, when sin, sickness, disease, and death entered the scene. There was all these curses, and we saw death was now a great problem for the human race. And throughout the book of Genesis, we have just seen so much sin, so much disease, so much carnage, wreckage from awful decisions. And I don't know about you, but there's times when I just walk through Genesis that I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is the very beginning of the story, and and the amount of sin is just overwhelming. And here at the end of Genesis, Joseph is facing the same curse that his dad faced, that everybody else faced. Joseph was going to face death. But like his dad, he asks to be buried in the promised land. See that in 24 and 25? Go, okay, so Joseph is believing the promises of God too. That's wonderful. But there's something unique about Joseph's final phrase. Look in the text. Verse 25, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. God will surely visit you. I mean, that's the whole problem. God sent him out the garden. How does Joseph have the prophetic hope to be able to say, oh, at one point you're going to get back with God? I mean, this is the great tension of Genesis. How will we become God's people in God's place under God's rule? How's that supposed to happen? And this is a question that we have to consider after each major figure in Genesis died. How was God's creation plan ever to be realized when sin and death created such separation? What was needed then was recreation. See, what Joseph needed was a new creation. That's what the original audience needed too. They needed an Eden 2.0. They needed somebody who was going to be able to face those angels with the flaming swords and take the death blow, which fully and finally allowed God's people back into God's place. But who can do that? Who would do that? What offspring of Eve was willing to face certain death so that God's people could one day return to God's place under God's rules? The end of Genesis doesn't tell us, but we've got this great hint. As Joseph says, God will surely visit you. And this is what happened. And it's what we celebrate in this Advent season. God did come visit us. He did come visit us. We don't get it here at the end of Genesis, but the end of Genesis points us to it. As does the whole book of Genesis. The whole book of Genesis has been pointing to him ever since the beginning. For it is Jesus Christ who the people of God were waiting for.
And it is Jesus Christ who Adam and Eve were waiting for. And all since then, it's ultimately who Genesis is inviting us to look for as well. For who is that chosen offspring of Eve who would fulfill the Genesis 3.15 promise? Jesus Christ, who is the true ark, who would save God's people from God's wrath while all the world perishes? Genesis 7, it's Jesus Christ. Who is the ultimate blessing, the offspring of Abraham, who will be a blessing to all the nations? Genesis 12, Jesus Christ. Who is the real son who who was to climb a mountain with wood on his back and be offered as a sacrifice? Genesis 22 tells us it was Isaac, but it's a pointer to Jesus. In Genesis 22, there's a substitute on that mountain, so Isaac doesn't have to die. When Jesus climbed that mountain, there was no substitute. Rather, he was the substitute for us. We're the ones who deserve to die. Jesus took our place. Who was the true Joseph who was exalted by his father? Genesis 37, Jesus. Who was the true Joseph who was humbled, thrown in a pit, left for dead? Genesis 40, Jesus. Who was the true Joseph to be resurrected and given authority over all the earth? Genesis 41, Oh, church, don't you see? God made a promise here in Genesis 50, 25. And in Jesus Christ, God has ultimately kept that promise. Jesus is the covenant keeper, the merciful one. Jesus is the sovereign God and creator, Christ, the one who took that death blow from the angels so that we might be able to return and be God's people in God's place under God's rule. Christ has visited from on high so that we might go back to new creation, recreation, Eden 2.0. And so as we sit here, we wait in this season for his second coming. When this is going to be fully and finally realized. Where we as God's people, we'll be able to go together and say, let's go to new creation. This is what we've been created for. Here's practical boots-on-the-ground benefit for believing in new creation. In the face of death, you and I, like Jacob and Joseph in our text, can believe that an even better world and land is waiting for us. See, because God has visited us in Jesus, we will one day be taken to live in the new Eden with Christ. And so no matter what we face, sin, Sickness, disease, and even death. We can hold on to hope. New creation is coming. Not the Eden of old, Genesis 1 to 3, but this Eden 2.0. For while Genesis 50 vaguely answers the question how we get back to God's place as God's people under his rule, Revelation 22 makes it explicit. Did you know in the last chapter of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we read of a new garden city and there's a river that flows through that garden city. Well, there there was a river in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. I know, right? How interesting. There's a tree of life in Genesis 1 and 2. Guess what tree is there in Revelation 22? Tree of life, baby. There was gold in the Garden of Eden. Guess what's in Revelation 22? Streets of gold. It's Eden 2.0. And one day, We're going to be able to be there. Because of Jesus, God's people 
finally in God's place, under God's rule. Leads us then to the sermon and sentence. God keeps his promises. God makes promises. We've seen that all through Genesis. As we read the rest of the Bible, we know God keeps his promises. God has made promises in Genesis, friends. He's keeping his promises. And the way to believe and see his promises, the way back to Garden of Eden 2.0, is believing in his covenant promises, trusting in his mercy, and believing in his sovereignty. Final thought, and this is for those of you here who do not believe in Christ. Maybe you showed up because you were being really nice on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Fine, I'll go to church. Maybe you're listening to this just trying to keep the peace. But in this moment, whether you're here online listening to a podcast, you find yourself realizing, I'm not trusted in Christ. If that's you, then I just want to be as clear as I can. The new Eden is not for you. You won't be there with us. See, Advent promises that while Jesus came the first time, he is coming a second time. And when he comes the second time, he is coming to judge the living and the dead. And we are going to be separated into two eternal destinations. On the one hand, those who have believed only in Christ, they will get to be with Christ forever in eternity, Eden 2.0. But for those who have not believed in Christ, your eternity is without him. It is under the wrath of God. It is endless suffering and torment. And in this moment, if you don't have Christ, what, what I want to ask you is, which eternity do you want? Dear friend, call on Christ today. His mercy is new today, and his mercy is for you. He's what Genesis is all about. He's what all the characters of Genesis were pointing to. He's what the whole Bible speaks of. He's what we're waiting for in this Advent season. Friend, if you're here and you don't trust in Christ, know this. He is the serpent-crushing, covenant-fulfilling, merciful Savior who will turn all evil one day to good. And He alone is the only way to bring you back to God's new creation. My prayer is you believe in Him today. Will you pray with me? God, thanks for the chance to walk through this book of Genesis, the chance to preach this, the final sermon in the series. For those who do know you, I pray you'd give great courage. Encourage and bring joy to those who love you. For those who don't, I pray you would save. Holy Spirit, would you move in power? In Christ's name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.